0: Well, this morning we return to the Gospel of Matthew. And we begin a new chapter, chapter 20. And by way of introduction, just thinking through this, every new generation of a culture is marked by a particular ethos, a value system based on commonly held beliefs, which is manifested in its aspirations. In other words, what a whole generation of people believes and thereby acts accordingly. For example, if hard work and excellence are the commonly held values of a culture or a society, then you will have a generation that excels and produces much. But if you have a generation whose ethos is conquest and dominance, then you will see a nation committed to expansion through war and invasion. So what is the ethos of our present generation? Well, I believe a case could be made that it is one of entitlement. So many people, especially young people today, believe that something is owed to them, whether it's free education or free health care or free housing or more money or more opportunities or more freedom. And yet we are not understanding that everything comes with a price. Nothing is free. Nothing is really owed to us. Sadly, this attitude has found its way, in many cases, into the church. As many Christians in this country have been led to believe that the church is ultimately all about them, and God exists to extend himself to them in order to make them happy. These, these attitudes, they appear in many places, such as the seeker-sensitive movement, the health and wealth and prosperity gospel movement, even philosophies such as moral therapeutic deism. Now, without unpacking all of those terms and movements, I believe that there is still ample evidence within what we can plainly see around us that the spirit of this age is one of selfishness and entitlement. Just look around and you'll see it. However, the gospel of grace knows nothing of such things. And today we're gonna see that Jesus does not miss out on an opportunity to correct such error in thinking. And so if you're not already there, turn to Matthew chapter 20. We've been in Matthew for quite a while now. We're working our way through this gospel and we're at the point in the story here where Jesus is traveling with his disciples that are on the way to Jerusalem, where he's eventually within a couple of weeks in the narrative, he's going to die on the cross. And then eventually, three days later, he will resurrect and come back to life. But in the midst of his journey, he is interacting with lots of people, various groups of people, different kinds of people, and as he is increasing in these variety of interactions, the disciples are growing concerned, not about the success of the mission, which is what they should be concerned about, they're not growing concerned about that, but rather they're growing concerned as to how they will be rewarded for their faithfulness. We read about this back even last week in Matthew chapter 19 verse 27 Peter who is a spokesman for the group at this point says behold we have left everything to follow you what then will be there for us Peter is worried about himself the disciples are worried about themselves unlike the rich young ruler who we looked at a few weeks ago who could not part with his wealth in order to follow Jesus the disciples on the other hand they have given up their homes. They've given up their businesses. And in many cases, even their family relationships, they've given up everything to follow Jesus. And so then their question is, amidst all of that, what's in it for me? What do I get for everything that I've sacrificed? And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Verses 28-29, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's certainly a promise meant for the twelve disciples. We know this. But then he says in verse 29, And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus, again, he makes a special promise to the disciples, to the twelve, promising them that even though they've given up much, they will be rewarded much as well in the, in the kingdom. But he also doesn't overlook Sort of the the sneaky, underlying, selfish desire that is placed above other desires here. Because they desire to be highly regarded. They desire to be rewarded. And on some level, they're desiring to be exalted above other people. We see this a little bit later in the gospel where the disciples are actually fighting among themselves about which one of them is going to be sitting at the right hand of, of the throne. And they bicker and they fight about that. And so Jesus says in verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Again, this is counterintuitive. This is the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God. It is not the prominent, well-to-do, charismatic, proud, successful people who enter heaven first. Rather, it is the humble, the lowly, the needy beggar who enters heaven's gate by faith and faith alone in the work of Christ. But he's building on this statement in verse 30 here, where he says the first will be last and the last first. He's building on that statement. And to build on that statement, on that little sentence, he actually offers a parable to illustrate the true nature of how anyone enters into eternal life. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through Sixteen. This is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So look at this with me. Jesus is speaking here. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. To those, he said, You also go into the vineyard, And whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, "'Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the, the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous?' So, the last shall be first, and the first last. Now, this has been called by several different names. Uh, it's always along the lines of the parable of the vineyard laborers or something like that. But here, Jesus is keeping up with his persistent practice of illustrating various aspects of the kingdom. We see, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, that there are lots of parables. And what's a parable? It's not two bulls, by the way. I gave that as a Sunday school answer one time, and that's wrong. Uh, a parable is it's a, a short story or an illustration to, to give uh, clarity to a, a larger truth. It's a simple story illustrating a larger truth or a complex truth. That's all a parable really is. And so Jesus is in the habit of doing this. He, he uses a lot of these parables to illustrate aspects of the kingdom of heaven. In some kingdom parables, he illustrates his future kingdom, such as the parable of the wheat and the tares, which is a parable describing the day of judgment. Others, like the parable of the pearl of great price or the parable of the seeds, he tends to illustrate the the nature of salvation, what, what salvation is like. And this parable certainly does include elements of the future. It really does have to do a lot more with the way of salvation. But I want to just look at this parable together. It's not a very complex parable. It's easy to understand, at least on surface value, what the story is happening here, what's going on. So I want to look at this together, and then we'll talk about what we see that it means. Verse 1, this is again Jesus speaking. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This imagery of a vineyard was a common imagery used throughout Israel's history. The most pointing example actually comes to us in Isaiah uh, chapter 5 where Israel, the nation of Israel is likened to the vineyard and God himself is the owner and vine dresser. Let me just going to read this to you, just a couple of verses from Isaiah 5 just to get it in your mind of this imagery. This is Isaiah 5 Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around removed its stones and planted it with the choice vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewn out a wine vat in it, and he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am doing. "...going to do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress." That was a very poignant reference to Israel, and they would have known that reference very, very well. It was a judgment, a a parable of judgment on Israel, keeping in mind here that the whole goal of owning a vineyard is that at some point that the vineyard is going to produce a time of harvest, is going to produce grapes and some kind of a crop, and that's certainly God's desire for his people. He desires spiritual fruitfulness. That's what he wants. But the parable in Isaiah 5 is that of judgment against Israel because they did not bear good fruit. And so he promises that he will bring judgment upon that vineyard. And so again, keeping that theme in mind of fruitfulness and vineyard and this whole parable in sort of seeking a new element of spiritual fruit, the Lord Jesus here is offering his own parable in Matthew 20, again with the goal of fruitfulness. Now, in Jesus' parable here, the figures are different than that of Isaiah. We see that the landowner really is the Lord God. The vineyard here is the realm of salvation within the kingdom of heaven. It is not exclusively Israel. It is the realm of salvation. It is the kingdom of heaven. The laborers, then, are those who work in the field, the field of God's kingdom. But as we're going to see, they're also participants in its rewards, So let's just keep on working this parable here. Again, verses 1 and 2. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. As often was practiced in first century Israel, landowners would come to the market square first thing in the morning and they'd be looking for day laborers, day laborers. Now, many landowners had a regular staff. They had people that worked for them on a full-time basis. But they would oftentimes go out and they would go and find cheap labor to help with very uh, menial tasks in busy seasons. They just needed someone to come in quick and just get some work done. And then they would just pay them a little bit of money and they'd send them on their way. And so here, the landowner, he goes to the town square. And it says it's early in the morning. Now, we know that the, the Jewish Uh, timetable. They would look at everything as a 12-hour day, 12-hour nighttime, 12-hour day. So early in the morning, it's about six o'clock in the morning, 6 a.m. He goes, and he's generally going to this first hour of the day to find those who are prepared to go and work. And so he goes looking to hire laborers for the day. Now, just a word about day laborers. In many cases, these day laborers were not highly skilled workers. Uh, they were oftentimes just a step above common slaves, and many of them were actually freed slaves themselves who were just looking for work. In this way, you could get a lot of labor for a cheap amount of money here, and they were cheaper than regular staff workers. This Again, this is grunt labor just for the purpose of getting the job done. And so verse 2, again, the landowner approaches several of these day laborers, and he agrees to offer them pay for the day. And how much is he planning to give them? It says he's going to give them a denarius. Now, a denarius, just in terms of of money here, a denarius is the standard day's wage for a Roman soldier. That was a decent day's wage. This is not cheap money for grunt work. This is a fair wage for an honest day's work. That's really important we establish that up front here. That's what he's offering, a denarius, a an honorable amount of money for a good day. The agreement is made here, and then it says he sends them into the vineyard with the expectation that they're going to receive a full day's wage. Verses three and four. He went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to those, he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. So very similarly to the early morning, he comes back to the market square, this time at the third hour of the day, so around nine o'clock in the morning, and he's looking for more help. Now, whether he didn't plan accordingly, or he has more work to offer, or whatever it is, we don't really know, it doesn't really matter. But he sees this group of laborers, and it says that they're standing idle. They're not doing anything. They're just standing around waiting for someone to show up and offer them a job. Now, it simply could be that they were idle because they were unemployed, like what else are you going to do in the market square? Or it could also be a commentary on the fact that they were the lazier workers and thereby less desirable. Jesus doesn't specify. But the landowner, he still hires them. We don't know the wage, that's not said to us, but it does say here that he agrees to whatever is right. Whatever is right. He pays them fairly according to what is right. So, My suspicion is based on how he pays the other laborers, he's most likely going to offer them a denarius, but again, we can't be emphatic on that point. Verse five, again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. He goes back at noon, he goes back at three to hire more laborers, and then we see him go back one more time in verses six and seven. It says, and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired him, or no one hired us. He said to them, Then you too go into the vineyard. Now at this point, again, keeping with the clock of the day here, the eleventh hour, that's right around five PM. How many times do you offer a full day's work worth of work at five PM? Well, not very often, right? 5 p.m., he got about one hour left to do any work. Similar to before, he sees all these laborers standing around, and he hires them. Now, I want you to notice here that these last-minute laborers are hired without an agreed-upon wage. There's nothing said about an agreement at all. He just sees them and says, you want a job? They says, yeah, sure. He says, come on, we're going to go work. So he tosses them into the field, knowing that at some and a little bit later, he's going to settle his debts with all of them, and whatever seems to be good and right is whatever he's going to do. That seems to be his practice. And then the end of the day comes, verses 8 and 9, says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the, the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. Now, this is the point in the parable, and Jesus does this all the time. This is the point in the parable. He's gone from the normal mundane details to the shock value of the parable. There's always some sort of a, an aha moment or a shock or an angering moment. There's always some level of truth that's going to shake his audience. Why? Well, because at the end of the long workday, the foreman pays the last minute laborers. He gives them a full day's wage for one hour of work. And the crowd would have been, wait a second here, outcry. You have to imagine that if you're the laborer that's only worked for one hour, you only gave it one hour, and you got paid for a full day, how are you going to feel? You're going to be ecstatic. This is the best day ever, right? I only had to work for an hour. This is great. And then you're going to say to the guy, hey, come back tomorrow, right? Of course, the foreman, he pays them their wage. He does this in front of everybody else. Because remember, he's paying the last guys first. He doesn't pay the early guys first. They're standing around. They're all just watching everything transpire in front of them. Now, if you're the early morning workers, you're watching the last minute guys get paid really well. They get paid a full denarius, and you start to get a little bit excited. Why? Why? Well, because here's here's how they're thinking. If the boss is willing to pay the last-minute guys a full denarius, then certainly he's going to pay us, the the full-day guys, maybe double or triple or quadruple of whatever those guys got, right? We worked hard for them all day. And so they're getting excited. Verse 10. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. What? We got only a denarius? What a letdown. What a ripoff, right? Verse 11, when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. They file a formal complaint against management for lack of wages. And what's their rationale? Verse 12, this is what they say. These last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. I want you to look at the nature of the complaint here. Look at this and analyze it with me because you have heard all this and maybe you've even said things like this before. But this is, I want you to see how they're arguing here. The first part of this complaint is that these last men have only worked one hour. So their initial their initial reaction is to look left and right. They're not thinking about themselves in terms of, okay, I worked a hard day, I'm ready to get paid, I'm ready to go home and see my family. They're not thinking about that. They immediately look left and right. And they go, that's not fair. These guys didn't do anything. And don't we reason that, why, that way sometimes? We look around and we say, well, they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not, they're not working as hard, right? They look left and right. And then they say that in paying one denarius, you have made made them equal to us. Now we're getting into issues of equity here. Notice that they don't say, you have brought us down to their level. They don't argue that way. They're not complaining that way. Instead, the complaint is this. You have made them equal to us. It's a very different argument. There's sort of an air of superiority here, isn't there? that you've made them equal to us. The sentiment is, we're the good workers. They're the lazy last-minute guys. And you've treated them like they're as good as us. That's how they're arguing. And then we see, lastly, sort of their dramatic self-aggrandizing claim. We have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. You almost want to take your hand and go like this and go... We worked all day in the heat, we bore the burden all day, and those guys didn't do anything. And you could just hear it, can't you? Suddenly, these workers are taking on a a martyr complex. We're the originals, we're the full day guys. Don't we do this? Don't we glorify our own struggle? Don't we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think? We showboat our war wounds. We we wear our suffering as a badge of honor, thinking that somehow it's worth something. These men thought that working a a full day entitled them to more compensation simply because of their struggle. But let me ask you a question. Would they have been thinking this way if the landowner had paid the late-day laborers less money? I don't think so. Because they were already originally excited, I believe, to get a denarius. That's a good day's wage. They would have been satisfied with the well-earned denarius of the day. We worked hard. We got paid well. Let's go home. But that's not what happens. Instead, what do they do? They grumble. They grumble and complain against the master. Verse 13. But he answered, the landowner, by the way, the landowner answered, and said to one of them, friend... I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Notice he doesn't snap back at them. This is, you have to kind of admire his restraint here. The, the spokesman of the group, he calls him friend. He calls him friend. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Now he could have respond, you wicked slave, you wicked servant, right? He could have done that. He doesn't though. He says, friend, listen, friend, I'm not, what did I do wrong? I'm not doing anything wrong to you. And then he says this, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Didn't we have a contract? This is, I'm fulfilling my contractual obligation to you. What did I do wrong? And frankly, friends, you have to marvel at the audacity of it. This isn't a skilled laborer negotiating for a pay raise. Instead, this is a day laborer someone who's just barely above a slave, a day laborer demanding more money for a one-day job that he was already overpaid to do. The landowner continues, verse 14. Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. The landowner, he's done listening to the arguments. He's done listening to the grumbling. I don't want to hear any more of it. The workers have now all been paid, and now they're going to be sent home. But while this is happening the landowner, he reiterates to them why. Why did he pay them all a denarius and why did he pay the last man the same as the first? Ready? Here it is. Because he wanted to. That's it. It's as simple as that. And as they're departing, he gives them one final remark. Look at verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Don't I have the right to pay you well and to pay them well and to give them extra? What, is, what concern is it of yours how I pay my people? Then he says this, or is your eye envious because I'm generous? Is this your problem, not mine? I want to keep in mind what we're dealing with here. This is a landowner dealing with day laborers in his vineyard. And yet, the laborers, all of a sudden, after one day, seemed to believe that they were justified in dictating terms and telling him how to run his vineyard. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what's my own? The answer is yes. That's a simple one, isn't it? Of course you can do whatever you want. It's yours. But then he puts his finger on the real problem. Friend, is your eye envious because I'm generous? You want to take advantage of me because of that? This word envious in the Greek language translates to the word, it's poneros is it, in the Greek, which can also be rendered as bad or worthless or even evil. This reminds us in Matthew six twenty three when Jesus warns against those whose eye is poneros, bad and full of darkness. Is your eye bad? Is it worthless? Is it evil? Is it? Envious because I'm generous? Here, the issue of the jealousy of the laborers, it's in the face of the goodness of the landowner. You see how they're juxtaposed? A bad and envious eye, which is the light of the mind and the heart, a bad eye versus the generosity of the landowner. They're stacked up against each other. And in fact, if you really want to push this a little further, this is reminiscent, I believe, of Luke 15, when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, doesn't it? This loving father who rolls out the red carpet for his prodigal son, who goes and blows all of his inheritance and basically stiff-arms his own father. And then finally, when he realizes he's trainwrecked his own life, he comes back and grovels, and the father treats him really well. And then what happens with the elder brother when he sees all this? He becomes envious because of the goodness of his father. And he, he pitches an attitude. And he becomes bittered. And angry and jealous over the Father's own goodness. But this final statement here, I believe, is meant to sting a little bit. Because we see the goodness of the master juxtaposing the jealousy and the wickedness of the servant. And I think it's this point that Jesus is concluding. He's going to tell this major statement here at the end of the parable. What's his concluding statement? What is the point? He says in verse 16 So the last shall be first, and the first last. Now, if you compare verse 16 here that we're looking at, to verse 30 of the previous chapter, because you see they're both listed there, right? They're inverse of one another. Matthew 19, 30, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Matthew 20, 16, so many of the, the, the last shall be first, and the first last. He just inverts both of those, right? But what's the point? The statement is clear. The statement is clear. It doesn't really matter which order you're talking about it. It's clear. The nature of God's kingdom is not conventional earthly wisdom. The way of the world, again, is that which is proud and successful and skilled and powerful. Those are the ones who finish first. But it's the lowly and the meek and the helpless. They finish last. But this is not the case with God. Now, scholars have interpreted verse 16 contextually, in a couple different ways. Meaning that, after all, we have to ask, what, what, what? how are the disciples hearing verse 16? So when Jesus says, and the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, what are they thinking about? What are they responding to? How are they understanding this? To whom is Jesus referring? Some scholars have believed that when he refers to the last, he's referring to people like sinners and tax gatherers and tax collectors. That it seems logical that the, the righteous people the well-to-do people, people like the rich young ruler who were, were prominent and had status and they were considered to be blessed because they were so rich. That the, the pious people would be the first and those who were lowly, the prostitutes and the, fair, uh, the tax collectors and the sinners and those who are low, they're the last. And so therefore, they would enter heaven first before the prideful Pharisees, for example. That's one possibility. Others have seen this first and last and last and first as a reference to the Gentiles. That somehow that when they receive eternal life, that the Jews here would have been saying, wait a second here, we're God's chosen people. We go in first and not the Gentiles. I mean, they're dead last, if at all. And maybe Jesus is saying, look, those who are rejecting me will be first and then the first will be last. That's also possible too. Others have even thought that maybe Jesus' point is that he's humbling the disciples because they believe they're chronologically the first ones, and they really are. It's Peter who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, oh, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, my Father who's in heaven. The the first convert, these 12, they were the first. So maybe Jesus is knocking them down a couple rungs to say it doesn't matter when you come into the kingdom. You guys aren't going to be the first, so to speak, even the one who comes in at the very, the very last convert at the end of the age, you're no better than them, just because you got here first. Now, this all could be part of it. Maybe this is what they're thinking about. But I tend to believe, and I'm not alone in this, a lot of scholars have sort of leaned this way, that the parable likely speaks to a grander reality. Even grander than who enters heaven first. Ultimately, this isn't about which group of hired slaves is better than the other. That's not what this parable is about. What then is it about? This parable is about the goodness and graciousness of the landowner. See, some scholars have seen parallels between the symbols here in the parable and the reality of salvation. And some have even seen, more specifically, the figures, the landowner being God the Father, And they've also seen the foreman here that's referenced as the Lord Jesus Christ. The laborers are the believers and the denarius is the gift of eternal life. And when we re-examine the parable, we see that the, the gift of eternal life is generously bestowed, generously bestowed on the laborers. For what reason? For the good pleasure of the landowner. Yet the early morning laborers, they believe that they were worthy of more We get more because they had perceived themselves to be better workers than others, better people than others. But the question then is, were any of them really worthy of the master's generosity and goodness? No, they weren't. All of them are recipients of grace. All of them, from the first to the last, makes no difference. All of them received the kindness and generosity Of the landowner's graciousness. And so again, the question is posed. Is it not lawful for the master to do what he wishes with what is his own? Is there a spiritual application here? You better believe it. Go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. In Romans 9, the apostle Paul sets out to articulate the doctrine of salvation. Salvation. He's talking about salvation all throughout the book of Romans. But by the time he gets to Romans 9, he's talking about salvation. He's also, also talking about the doctrine of sovereign election. See, the Jews believed that they had been, they had a monopoly on salvation because they were deemed to be God's chosen people. He had made them promise after promise after promise in the Old Testament, promises he intends to keep. And I believe even to this day, he has future promises for these people. But that's not the point here. That's not really what this is all about. They believe that they were superior because they were Israel. But Paul smashes all of that to bits, noting that the only reason anyone receives the grace of salvation is because God desires to give it. doesn't matter who you are. Now, immediately, our haunches tend to go up because the charge is brought forth. Wait a second here. You mean to tell me that God chooses to save some and not others? That's not fair. Romans chapter 9 verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for the destruction and and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory even us the bible says whom also he also called not from among jews only but also from among gentiles once again the only reason that anyone goes to heaven It's not because of their heritage. It's not because of their background. I went to church as a kid. Well, congratulations. That's not why anybody goes to heaven. Is it because of your personal experiences? I lived a hard life. That's got to be good for something. Is it because of your labor and your toil? Is it because of your good works? Is it because of your sufferings? No. Why does anyone go to heaven? The reason that anyone goes to heaven again is because God is gracious to them. And he grants them eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's all we have, friends. All we have is faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And it's out of a heart that has been saved. It's out of a heart that has been made new and born again and regenerated. It's out of a grateful, regenerated, restored heart. That's where the good works come from. That's where the faithfulness comes from. That's where the hard work comes from. But if you think that your hard work and your good deeds and all your stuff, if that's what's getting you in, you're, I'm sorry, but you've been mis- misled. That's not why we go to heaven. We go to heaven because God is good. He's faithful. And yet... So many people, and I'm going to include myself in this grandiose statement. We squabble and we bicker and we posture as if we're better than other people. And we, do, we don't say this. We don't ever say this to our Christian friends. But it's, it's hidden in the way that we say what we say. When a well-known sinner gets saved and God begins to use them to do good things and they begin to run well, rejoice, rejoice. And when someone else is chosen for a ministry opportunity or they become a deacon or they become an elder or if somebody else is praised for being faithful, rejoice. Rejoice, be thankful, give praise to God for being generous and gracious to them. We should be rejoicing when other people are doing well. And I'll tell you, and I'm, again, I'll include myself here. This is, this is such a common malady with pastors. Oh, their church is doing this and their church is doing that. That one's bigger. That one's better. Forget it. It doesn't matter. When another church is doing well, and I'm not saying this to puff myself up, but I want to be honest with you. When someone else is doing well, I rejoice. When a church in New Hampshire is growing and I have ministry friends that are doing well, we ought to praise God and be grateful More converts, more attendance. I get excited because we have to see that God is working. And I just want to put some flesh on the bones here. Grace Church Dover, they planted last year. Their average attendance right now is 130 people. It took us like eight years to get to that. You know what? Praise the Lord that God is bringing about revival on the seacoast. I don't give a hoot how many people are coming to what church, when, and how. I praise God that he's working in New Hampshire. Don't we want to see the gospel and the kingdom growing here? So if God wants to use someone else to do that and not you, not me, praise him for what he's doing in his vineyard. But we get trapped, friends. We get stuck. We suck our thumb and complain and cry and whine. How come he's not using me for that? How come he's given them more than me. Is your eye envious because God is good? All of us are poor beggars, grunt laborers, friends, or day laborers standing there doing nothing. And then God comes along and says, "I'm going to save you and put you to work." Really? Amen. We are unrighteous and unworthy at heart. We are undeserving of the blessings and the promises of God. We have done nothing in and of ourselves to merit eternal life, nothing. It is God by his sovereign grace that anybody is saved. And so what is the kingdom of heaven like? The kingdom of heaven is full of poor sinners that are deserving of hell, and yet God extends grace to them and redeems them for his own purposes. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, some he appoints as apostles and puts them on 12 thrones, judging Israel. Other... Beggars, he calls into various levels of ministry. With some of them, he plants churches. Some, they become evangelists and pastors and teachers and shepherds and things like that. That's Ephesians 4.11. Some, he calls into ministries of sacrificial giving. Some saints, he gives them a lot of money. He makes them wealthy so they can learn to be generous to the mission. And we looked left and right, all that Christians got more money than I do. Has it ever occurred to you that the reason God gave them money is because they know how to steward it and they're going to give generously to the ministry? Some he's called to selfless service. Some of you will labor and serve this body and no one will ever even know about it this side of heaven. Some of you serve quietly. Some of you serve in ways that nobody sees. God sees it. He knows what you're doing. But if you're serving quietly and selflessly, don't look for pats on the back. Don't chase it. Don't drop hints and clues about how much you're doing. Just serve and trust him. There's no lesser or greater in the kingdom of heaven. There's no lesser or greater in this church. All there is is God's sovereign grace. And this is his vineyard and we are his laborers. And so I want to exhort you this morning, show up early and work hard all day, okay? Because God is gracious, and the harvest is glorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful parable. And Lord, we get caught up in acting like these laborers, bickering and grumbling and looking left and looking right, and we, we toil in ourselves, Lord, to our shame. And yet, yes, even though we have envious or, or jealous eyes, even through our tainted eyes, we are able to see by, this, by the Spirit's ministry that you are generous, that you are good. Lord, all of us here who know you and love you, who are saved by God's, by your grace alone through faith in Christ, all of us are recipients of your kindness. Lord, none of us are here because we're worthy of anything. We're not here because we're better than other people. We're not more holy. We're not more pious. We're not more deserving. I just think about our dear brother, Martin Luther, whose last words were, All of us are beggars. This is true. I just, I resonate, Lord, that's just us. But Lord, let us see through this parable, let us see that you are so good that you would even redeem one person at all deserving of punishment. And yet you redeem thousands and millions and countless numbers of people. You bring us to saving faith because you are good. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, convict us of our sins, that we would not look left and right, we would not compare ourselves with other people. We wouldn't complain when we don't get what other people have. But Lord, let us just see this rightly and let us give you praise and honor and glory. Let us worship you. Lord, let us praise you when others do better than we're doing. Let us give you glory when you redeem those who are so far gone. I just, it's so good, Lord, when you redeem sinners. And so, Lord, help us to see it rightly. Help us to praise you. Help us to be grateful for our salvation. Let us not be envious. Let us not be foolish. But let us be righteous in your sight. Because you are such a loving and merciful God. And I pray, Lord, that all, all would come to faith. And that's why we labor. We labor with this message, O Lord, that yes, all of us are sinful. All of us are lost. And yet you have sent your only beloved son to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, to give himself up in our place. And yet you grant faith that all who would hear the message and turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ would have this wonderful gift this blessed denarius of eternal life. All who hear and believe and repent will be saved. So Lord, grant repentance, grant saving faith, and Lord, bring us home to glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.